Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Rosenbaum, a political correspondent with St. Louis Public Radio. Over the past week, St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner has faced arguably the biggest crisis of her political career. That's because there's been increasing pressure for Gardner to step aside after a man who repeatedly violated the terms of his house arrest seriously injured 17-year-old Janae Edmondson. The Edmondson case appeared to be the final straw for Attorney General Andrew Bailey. He filed what's known as a quo warranto motion to remove Gardner from office. But at the end of the day, I'm obligated under the statute to hold Kim Gardner responsible for her failure to discharge her legal, moral and ethical duties. Gardner said at a chaotic press conference that she was not stepping aside and contended that St. Louis voters, and not Bailey, would choose her political future. We know we do not control every part of the system, but what we can control is we're going to fight very hard for justice in spite of the vitriol, the hate, the racist attacks, the known manipulation of the court procedures to make sure our office fails. This is not the first time that an attorney general has used a quo warranto motion on a county prosecutor. In 2009, then-Attorney General Chris Coster sought to oust Dent County Prosecutor Jessica Sparks from office. At the time, Joseph Danderan was Deputy Attorney General. And when he served as a judge in Cass County, he presided over a case that eventually went to the Missouri Supreme Court known as Fuchs v. Foote. That set a major precedent for how quo warranto cases are decided. Here's my conversation recorded earlier this week with Joseph Danderand. Can you just provide a little bit of background about um, your public legal career? I practiced law in, uh, in central Missouri. My office was in Warrensburg until I was elected a circuit court judge, a trial court judge in 1986. And I was elected four different times, 1986, 92, 98, and 2004. About halfway through that last term, I was appointed uh, by Governor Blunt to the Missouri Court of Appeals for the Western District, where I served only 14 months before I retired from the bench after 23 years and took the job as the Chief Deputy Attorney General under uh, Chris Coster's administration. And I moved to Jeff City, and I did that for eight years until his, his term Ended. I worked a little while in uh, the transition for for uh, Attorney General Josh Hawley, and then left to become the director of legal aid of Western Missouri, which I did for five years, until I retired from that job and now do uh, mediations and arbitrations on a full-time basis at the J. Doherty Mediation and Arbitration Firm with several other colleagues. How were you involved in the 2009 effort to remove Dent County Prosecutor? Jessica Sparks from office. So I was the, at that time the chief deputy attorney general. We, we had just started. I don't think I'd been there very long, and it was as um, it, it was one of my obligations to um, to be a part of those proceedings because the attorney general considered them very serious matters, and only one of those determinations and cases handled at the at the highest level. So um, so I was involved in that. Um, that decision-making process and in that filing. 
how did Attorney General Coster and and yourself like get wind of this? I know that you all want to be omnipresent and follow everything that's going on in every Missouri county, but I have to imagine somebody alerted you to this situation. I, I'd be interested to hear like how this even got to the attorney general's attention, if you recall. Right. There, There is no way for me to call specifically, but I cannot imagine that it happened in any other fashion than that there were complaints brought to our attention. So anybody can ask the attorney general to file a Quoronto, and that's usually the source of of um, the initiation of the process. So the attorney general will receive very many requests from maybe private citizens or others to review and potentially file a Quoronto against against public officials. Um, that's where it has to start. So that's that's what happens. Uh, you're correct. We don't would not go around looking for something to file or something to do. To and, and in fact, they are just not favored. No, you know, nobody wants to to undertake the filing of a petition in Colorado. That that's my belief initially. Um, we all, I mean, the Attorney General is elected official and would respect the fact that um, that this is a person who's been elected by the will of the people, the voters of the district. And so I'm confident that an attorney general will take it very seriously before deciding whether to file such a, an action. Do you remember how the decision was made in this instance to file a quo warranto? Or, or, or like, do, do you know, like, what was the tipping point for your office to, to actually pursue this? So it would, I'm going to tell you what I believe happened because this happened every week in an instance of matters that would um, require really the eyes of more than one we had a staff meeting of, of chris coster's upper level, upper level staff persons every monday morning and we would review matters that were brought to that group and and discuss it as a group the decision of course ultimately is up to the attorney general but uh, he would he was very intent on taking input from the people that he surrounded himself with as, as trusted legal advisors and counsel. And so that's what we did. So every single Monday morning we met, and and that would have been the case. I'm confident in a, in a case such as this, we would have talked about it and listened to uh, the wisdom of the, of the group. And we had a lot of seasoned, uh, experienced lawyers in that group, like Judge Ron Holliger and Jim Layton and, uh, and folks like that. It was, it was a great group to kick those things around with. So, you know, that wasn't the only one that we filed dur- during our, our time in office. It just happened to be the only one against the prosecutor. But ultimately, I don't even know how long it, it took. Ultimately, after it was filed, she she decided to resign and yeah. not fight it. Yeah. But hers was, you know, hers was unique. There, there were other things, but uniquely, she made... Um, decisions not to file criminal charges and made a public statement to the commission, if I, if I recall this right, but the county commissioner, she said, look, you need to fund this office. I can't prosecute cases if you won't fund the office, and I'm not going to file charges unless you fund my office adequately. So it was, a, a you know, an, if I recall, and that's what I'm trying to remember, it was an overt decision on her part to not do what she had been elected to do. And, and you know, I understand. I, mean, I certainly do understand her position, right? She needed the, the money to be able to um, to prosecute the cases. She needed to have her office funded. But that was a, a decision that she made that she announced. I don't know if you've like looked over the details of the Kim Gardner case, but do you see any similarities or differences between the Sparks case and the Gardner case? That's. I think that's a great question. So I I 
read it over quickly. Um, I read over the petition quickly to see, you know, what it was that I, I thought they were alleging in, in particular that would that would bring it underneath the several different um, issues for which you can be removed from office in the Quorant or, or have your office forfeited or be ousted. And this one, to me, looked to be very particular, the, the meat of it particular. One of the grounds is for um, is for willful neglect of an official duty, and I will tell you again, Judge Limbaugh defines willful neglect in that uh, foot opinion. He defines it, and and they go pretty good detail talking about the difference between, um, you know, uh, uh, the different reasons for which you can be removed. And so I read in this petition that's filed by Attorney General Bailey that he's alleging willful neglect, and so willful neglect. As you know, I mean, is it defined by Judge Limbaugh when he also states that the legislature has not defined willful neglect in, in the statute? So the Supreme Court did, and they, you know, they said in that case, an official willfully willfully neglects an official duty um, when they intentionally fail or refuse to act. So that's that's what the finding was in in the sheriff's case in Cass County and that's to me what the meat of the allegation is here so he's alleging she forfeited her, her right to continue working and finish out her term because of a claim that she willfully neglected her official duty um, by intentionally failing or refusing to act as as within the, the the parameters of what she was supposed to do as the elected prosecutor uh, that that's what it looks like to me and you know you kind of touched on this earlier but i think that the biggest pushback i i've heard from a at least a rhetorical standpoint from gardner supporters is that you can kind of dance around this as much as you want but when you're successful in one of these you're overturning an election now does that actually correspond with kind of the threshold needed to actually be successful in this and in, in other words is there a pretty high bar based off the precedent that you mentioned for something like what Bailey is doing to actually be successful? Right. I think it is a high bar. But, you know, there's a judge who's going to hear the evidence and a judge is going to make a determination as to whether or not it fit within that statute. The judge, I know, will take the issue very seriously and recognize that it is a high bar. But he'll listen to all the facts and and I can point back to the foot case. There were there were so many different things, so much stuff that was thrown against the wall in that trial for the case that was decided actually by Judge Dick Weber, who was at that time a circuit judge, also ended up being a federal judge, very well respected in the in the Eastern District, Judge Weber. But um, Judge Limbaugh for the Supreme Court actually said, well, you know, we're only going to talk about these three things. And, and, um, and he addressed specifically three things and saying, you know, this is enough. There are lots of things alleged, but these three things combined together are enough. The judge in this case is going to have to do the same thing, listen to all the evidence and find out if he believes that after hearing all the evidence, there's sufficient evidence to warrant this uh, removal. Um, and, and, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's a high bar and, and, um, and one I'm certain the judge will, will take seriously and listen to the evidence carefully over. There's been some some people I've talked to have said that if Bailey is successful, um, given that like the, the three legs of the stool that he's depending on is, is some of the details of the Janae Edmondson tragedy, some things about 
her not pursuing cases that are given to her by the St. Louis Police Department and another about not notifying victims or, or keeping in contact with potential victims and crimes. A couple of people I've talked to have said that if this is successful, it could have an effect on prosecutors' ability to have discretion in different cases. Um, I don't know if you dealt with this in the Sparks case or if you've thought about that particular point, but is it possible that if this is successful, it could have broader implications on prosecutorial discretion about when to pursue a case and when not to pursue a case? I think that there's no doubt that it will. And again, the way I differentiate to the Sparks case, and I think it is a, it is a clear differential line, and that is that she actually said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to file these charges because. Um, not because I'm using my discretion because they don't have merit or do have merit. It was simply, I'm not going to do this job because I don't have funding, adequate funding from you county commissioners. Um, so that's not what's being alleged here. And and you're hitting a nail on the head when you describe what becomes a, a slippery slope for for um, for the judge and potentially the messages sends to prosecutors in the future. But uh, this is not to say that there there can't be evidence of a prosecutor's neglect of duty that is willful that is so compelling that that a Coloranto should issue. I just don't. I just don't. Well, I shouldn't say I don't know of any. I should, actually, I should not say that um, and won't. I'm just saying that it's um, the, the thing that you raised, the point you raised about whether or not it could have a chilling effect on prosecutors going forward is absolutely true. Um, and so they may be looking over their shoulders. Who knows? I guess another thing that somebody else has pointed out, that is, if this is successful, there's nothing stopping Kim Gardner from running in 2024. And she may be able to win another term. Absolutely. It's it's only for removal. I mean, you know, it, it works all the way around. It's only for removal for that particular term of office. Um, you know, if, if, for instance, the term expired before the ruling was made, it doesn't, doesn't work. If the conduct happened before the last election, not admissible. Um, you know, it has to be conduct during that term of office, and there's nothing to prohibit them from running again in the next election. Absolutely. For more coverage of the Kim Gardner saga, go to stlpr.org. I'm Jason Rosenbaum, and thanks for listening. smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.